You're listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life with Dan Simon. What I discovered is that I'd actually built the right house. I just never turned the lights on. Sometimes my gut can be a little too fearful. Sometimes my mind can be a little too dour. Sometimes my heart can be a little too open. And so having everybody on board, checking and balancing, I find it has been very helpful to me. And that's a model based very loosely on Chinese medicine. A person who came onto the planet with a high degree of sensitivities, aesthetic sensitivities, perceptual sensitivities, psychic sensitivities, etc. And I've spent the last almost 50 years and a few weeks trying to figure out how to make those abilities useful and in service to my friends and clients and colleagues and family. But part of the experience was having a one-on-one talk with the Zen master. And I don't remember his Zen name, but I do remember his human name, which was Bob. And I remember Bob saying to me that if I, if I didn't get on the path, that my life wouldn't have any meaning. Kind of my whole life started to revolve around this notion of not just like, well, I need to be on the path. I realized I need to be on my path and I need to figure out what that is very, very clearly, the body wants you to heal and thrive and will start to go into a chaotic state. That's the only word I have really for it. It starts to create this very intense chaos that then starts to resolve into this very deep harmony. And that's my process. Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. Today's show is intriguing and quite enchanting because we rewind the life of a healer trained in energy medicine at the interface of medicine and shamanism. Our guest learned about her gifts very early on in life of aesthetic and psychic and perceptual sensitivities that allowed her to follow her own path to create a life of meaning and to help others to find their own significance and to lead a life of meaning as well. So welcome to the show, Jennifer Sokolov. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Your self-description is feral at 50, (laughs) untamed by the conventions of life. That is still an apt description for me. 
Uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have realized early on after I think about nine months in a corporate job that that was never going to work for me. And from there, it became a continuous editing process to stay current with my interests and passions and calling until that emerged into a way of approaching life. If you could uh, summarize in, in only six sentences what Jennifer is all about. Okay, well, I would best summarize myself as a person who came onto the planet with a high degree of sensitivities, aesthetic sensitivities, perceptual sensitivities, psychic sensitivities, etc. And I've spent the last almost 50 years and a few weeks trying to figure out how to make those abilities useful and in service to my friends and clients and colleagues and family. So I began my journey first, I think, as a thinker and reflector, even as a child. Um, I was not the kid who was digging around in the dirt. I was the kid on the side of the hill watching the other kids digging around in the dirt and thinking about that and staring at the sky. That morphed into an artistic life that lasted for a couple of decades and then reemerged um, in another decade with a big break. And then that transformed into an exploration of healership and the body and uh, a juxtaposition of my internal meditative bent with my creative spiritual bent. And that is where I'm currently living, although I can recognize that I'm starting to do more writing again and thinking about how I might take some of that material and actually create something with it inwards. Let's go, let's go back to uh, what you said initially about your first job after about nine months. You said, this is not for me. This is not what I want to do with my life. And you took a different path. Well, one of the things that I realized about myself only retrospectively after that job is that I wasn't raised to believe that I should follow any kind of particular hierarchy. Uh, my family was a very verbal family, a very questioning, Socratic method kind of family. And so when I started my journey working first in nonprofit and then in this corporate job, I never looked at the org chart on my computer with this sense of, oh, well, I'm at this tier, so I can only talk to the people that are in my same level. I just started the practice of walking by, and if somebody's door was open, I'd walk in. It didn't matter who they were. I just wanted to find out what they did and what they were passionate about and why they came to work every day. And after doing that for a few months in the corporation I was working for, I just started to understand that people were really unhappy right. and that a lot of what had brought them into this environment were actually legitimate passions and stirrings and caring for the world and caring for their voice and using their talents to try to manifest something in the world that was important. But then 
in living in a corporate environment, um, there was a kind of winnowing or pigeonholing everyone into very specific, almost mechanical tasks. And the ship was so large that it would be very difficult to turn and move and change as your skills, your insights, your knowledge base grew. And so year after year, if you continued in the same line of work, you might ascend in the corporate structure, but your opportunities to express yourself got fewer and fewer. And when I recognized that formula, I just knew in my soul that that wasn't going to work for me. And so my fluidity from the beginning pointed me towards the fact that I actually needed the fluidity to sustain. And so I made the decision to leave without knowing what my next step was going to be. I don't think I've ever had a job that I've actually been qualified for. Didn't, I never trained formally in anything I did until the, junk, the chapter that I'm in now. And so when I had that not-for-profit job and I got the corporate job, I called up one of my friends and I said, listen, I don't have any clothes to go to that job. I said, how much money do I need? Will you meet me at the store and basically outfit me for this job? I essentially asked her to buy me a costume as if I were going to be an actor playing a role as a web producer in a corporate environment. And it was the first time in my life I had coordinated clothes for every single day of the week. (laughs) And I remember walking into that job and a couple of the other women were like, wow, you know, where do you dress? How do you do that? And I'm laughing because it's all a put on. But what I understood about that is that being qualified for jobs is sort of a myth. We basically learn what we need to know when we're there. Obviously, if you're a chemist or a computer programmer, you have to have some basic skills. And I had the basic skills, right? I, I was you know, an excellent writer and I knew what I needed to know about technology to get hired and do what I needed to do, but I never trained in those things. I never intended for that to be my career. And I think that's one of the key reasons why I could leave it because my investment level wasn't the same as yours. You know, that's interesting. But also for me, it was not even considering that there was something else that would be more fulfilling for me until, uh, no, I don't know, 30 years later. Not even, not even considering, you know, path one was work for a big company, work, work your way up the ladder. When that got untenable, it was path two was, run your own business with a bunch of people and have even more headaches, you know, and work 24 (laughs) seven. Did either of your parents have a job that they loved? Well, no. Well, I think, well, my, my mother was always at home and then she worked uh, uh, after we, uh, my sister and I grew up, she worked in, uh, in a university and she enjoyed that. Um, at, uh, she worked at Carnegie Mellon, and she enjoyed that uh, as her kind of her her, her second career. Uh, but my dad never had a job uh, that he enjoyed. I don't think he was. My dad is he's 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 ninety now, and he is uh, he is very stoic, and he doesn't like to talk about himself, and he's always kind of been that way that he's not going to complain, but. It wasn't, a, there was certainly not a role model of, 
and I always wondered why he stayed in this one job that was that was a lot of pressure and stress, and I don't think he liked it. And, and he had his first heart attack at fifty. Uh, and, oh my goodness! Uh, and uh, no, he didn't. There wasn't a role model of hey, you can do this, you can do that. You know, it was. Uh, he had a great. He has a great sense of humor. Still does. But um, in terms of when you look back historically, in terms of what affects you, all the things that happen in your family, ancestry have an effect, and you don't oftentimes even realize it. Uh, well, you, in fact, you usually don't realize any of it unless you do some research. But he lost both of his parents when he was when he was young, and I don't think he ever recovered from it. Mm -hmm. And when he married uh, my mother, he kind of was adopted in, into their family. Mm -hmm. but it wasn't uh, he didn't have ambitions in terms of what do I have to do to self-actualize it was just you know support the family and do whatever you need to do but no I, I think it was simply because um, I I always had that um, inner vibration I my very first transgression where I openly lied to my parents and told them that I, I was at a friend's house and then I uh, took the car and drove to a neighboring town and went on a Zen meditation retreat. And I was the only kid there. It was, I grew up in Ohio, so that was not a very common thing to do Yeah. in the eighties. And uh, I remember in, you know, every sit, in Zen tradition, you get up and you do these walking meditations and I was crashing into everybody because I didn't know what direction I was supposed to go. It was all very formalized. And as you can tell, I'm not great on the formalities. But part of the experience was having a one-on-one -on -one talk with the Zen master. And I don't remember his Zen name, but I do remember his human name, which was Bob. And I remember Bob saying to me that if I if I didn't get on the path that my life wouldn't have any meaning. And at the time I felt like that was such a strong statement. I was barely 16. I just gotten my driver's license and I thought, get on the path. You know, how is that, how is that at all going to change my life? And then that seed started to sprout inside of me and kind of my whole life started to revolve around this notion of not just like, well, I need to be on the path. I realized I need to be on my path and I need to figure out what that is. So at 16, that happened. That so, happened. You know, it's, it, there's always a moment, there's always an incident, an event that can have a huge effect in me. And I'm sure you didn't realize it at the time, but can have a huge effect on everything that proceeds from it. Well, even little things, like I remember as a kid, I had this cat that I just loved and he would go out in the backyard and kill the birds, you know, as cats are wont to do sometimes. And the first bird I named Twitter and it was like heartbreaking for me to watch Twitter die and then give the funeral to Twitter. And then there was the next bird who was Twitter too. And that whole incident repeated itself. And then the next bird was Twitter three. And by Twitter three, I, I think I started to really understand that there was something about the circle of life that I, I needed to start really thinking about. And it was not so very long after that. So I was probably eight years old at the time that I became a vegetarian. 
because it was just overwhelming to me to think about the life of the animals that I was eating. Uh, and mm. that lasted for a very long time. I'm not currently a vegetarian, although I would be if I could maintain my health that way. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is difficult, especially, especially I think, for women. But it was always that connection. I, I felt like I was never separate from this notion that life is not permanent. And so to be in a work, when you're asking me, well, what would my life have been if I had stayed in corporate? I think I probably would have, like your father, become quite ill. Because I, I think I would have gotten so deep inside that I wouldn't have been able to walk away for the sake of the other people that were involved in the endeavor with me. And I wouldn't have been able to organically tolerate what I was going through. And probably the only way my psyche could resolve that would have been to become ill completely resonate with that in terms of how we make ourselves sick when we repress who we are, when we, we, we try and fit in to the, uh, to the mold and conform. And it's going to express itself in ways that are usually going to be unpleasant or uncomfortable or, or uh, very harmful. Yeah. And that's, that's really what's happening in our society. You know, you look at how unhealthy the country the country is. Uh, for those that are listening in the U.S. or Canada, I'll say that applies. Different co countries have completely different cultures and different diets and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of a lot of disease everywhere mm -hmm. everywhere you look. There is, and in my current iteration, working in healership and energy work, craniosacral therapy, yoga, that's a large part of what I now contemplate and and I'm hopefully helpful in supporting others and contemplating so that the life that they need and want to express or the illness that they need and want to shift can start to heal and allow them to move to the next part of the spiral that is their journey. You've trained yourself in, in uh, lots of different modalities in terms of uh... Uh, yoga and Pilates and, and, and the energy healing work you do, you know, I've worked with a lot of different energy healers as well. And everybody really puts their own uh, imprimatur on what they're doing. So I'd be interested in how you develop the, your energetic healing practices uh, as much as, and I, I obviously a lot of it can't be shared uh, verbally, but I'd just be interested in terms of uh, how you work with, with people. and uh... The foundation of my belief system, or I, that's a very funny way to put it, because I, I just, let's say maybe relationship is a better way to put it. I don't know if I believe or disbelieve, but the relationship between myself and what it is that is healing is that the body, mind, and spirit are not at all separate. And we give a lot of lip service to that in like alternative medicine. But the more that I spend time in presence with other people and placing my hands on them, the more I feel that um, illness is a manifestation of everything. It's a physical trauma. It's an emotional trauma. It's a spiritual crisis. It's a belief or thought crisis. It's a kinesthetic crisis. It's all of these things. I'm, and I, I'm using the word crisis because I do work with a lot of um, serious 
situations. And so in, when you sit with that kind of Gordian knot, I feel like there's very little wisdom that I have that the person that I'm working with does not have. It's not really about that. I am able to put myself aside, put my deepest desire for someone to be well aside, and I'm able to be in presence with that very complicated experience in the fullest way that I'm capable of at this moment. And something about that witnessing and something about the relieving of forces, and I'll talk about the forces in a moment, allows the person, their entirety, to start to unwind and reconfigure their relationship to all of those different aspects of whatever the situation is. But to go back to the forces, what I often find is that, sort of like a sweater, if there's a very subtle snag in your sweater, if you're really, really sensitive to it, you can feel it throughout the whole of the fabric. And I believe that our bodies are the same way. So whether that right. snag is an anatomical actual structure or an energetic dynamic, if we can be with that place and give it its respect and space and breath and presence, very, very clearly, the body wants you to heal and thrive and will start to go into a chaotic state. That's the only word I have really for it. It starts to create this very intense chaos that then starts to resolve into this very deep harmony. And that's my process. And I could tell you lots of technical things. I could give you lots of names and people and places. And there are just phenomenal practitioners on every strand of this work. But in a nutshell, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Because, and again, I, I'm looking at contrasts in terms of, you know, what, what you do and I do are, certainly very different in terms of uh, well you have different skills and talents that, than I have but there are also some core similarities which which I think start with uh, being able to have a an empathy a compassion a caring for the other person that you're working with because that connection that that you make, the connection I make when I'm coaching someone really requires trust and it requires all the other stuff, the external stuff to be kind of moved out of the way. And what I'm hearing from you is that's, you know, that's something you become very good at, moving those things out of the way so you can make that energetic psychic connection and and simply allow somebody to get in touch with things that they're not by themselves uh, can't figure out, can't get in touch with, can't do it on, on their own because really none of us can really do it by ourselves. We can't figure things out or see the label, the jar that we're in. And uh, so that, that approach of 
of just being there and, uh, and being a witness and providing a, a loving energy and a compassion that allows them to figure it out is, uh, have I aptly des describe it? Because it's yeah, a powerful I thing. I think of it as almost like cellular memory and that we were once water creatures inside of another creature. We didn't right. do this thing on our own ever, not for one second. Yeah. So when we can be in presence with each other and recreate that porous dynamic, we can almost return the body into its stem cell cellular memory that allows a kind of radical repatterning at the deepest of our tissue level and the deepest of our energetic level. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the whole thing is, is fascinating. You know, and really kind of the way I work is I started in terms of helping people rewrite their stories as it started kind of a mental level but it's amazing how as you said there everything is interconnected and when you start at a, a mental level energetically and you can say hey that's a story that I've been living that's just a story that somebody else gave me and you can begin to feel what's really right uh, what's really true for you then you're emotions and your spirit changes as well and gives you that opportunity but you can't ever change the the emotional side if you keep going back to the old story because people don't really want to live a, somebody else's story they don't want to live an inauthentic life but you know it's very powerful that you know if you've had a lifetime of being trained and this is a story that you're supposed to have it's a uh, it takes a lot of, of collaborative work that many people find it very uncomfortable to do, and that's why they don't. I don't think they, that many people are not going to do it because it's obviously it have to be very vulnerable and it can be very uncomfortable and painful. And I, I think that's often why there's um, a healing crisis that has to emerge before right. someone decides to go on that journey. Usually, people don't you know, come in from a great day, raise their hand and say, you know, I really want to turn my life entirely upside down to find my passion. <laughs> they come when their life already is upside down. And I'm right. sure that as a coach, you um, have a way of making that upside downness a little less terrifying. And it's just that little bit less that most of us need to be able to start to rebuild ourselves in a new way. Yeah, sometimes a little bit of hold handling, uh, hold handling, hand holding, <laughs> and, and support is all that's needed for somebody to start to take care of what they need to take care of on their own. Because the way I look at it is, I don't. I never have an answer for my client in terms of what, they, what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to live their life. There's no way I could really know that. I can, I can just be a mirror and reflect what's true or what's not true and allow you to make your own decisions. But that, that allowance that they don't get on the outside in their, in their normal outside environment, that allowance to be themselves is uh, 
can be the, the catalyst for, for huge changes, but it starts with small changes. And uh, you're absolutely right. It, it starts you in a different direction in your life. And uh, again, most of the time, there's some got to be some kind of a, of a, another catalyst or a trigger that says, oh, I gotta, I've got to change this. And it's usually a traumatic event or whether it's health wise or otherwise or life event that causes you to, mm-hmm. to, to, to say, Hey, I need to, I need to enlist, elicit some other help to move forward. So let me, let me ask this, Jennifer, sure. what does the work that you do helping other people, how would you describe what it does for you? I find that it reveals to me the places in my self, in my own story. We all carry something that, a a cohesive narrative of some sort. So even if that changes all the time, which I think it does, it helps me to become aware of my own limitations. And while that's not something I'm expressing in sessions with clients, that's their time. And in some ways, it's almost like a performance, um, not a performance, that's not the way to say it. When I, was, when I was artistic in doing things performatively, I found often that when you've rehearsed a dance, you know, many, many times and you perform that with, in my case, I danced with a company. So when you perform with the other women in the company, in a way, we all sort of had a bit of structure around our experience. And my work feels like that. Uh, The energy, the human experience has the structure around it. But then when I leave work and I'm just myself in my own life and my own story, I'm keenly aware of the places that I continue to need to grow and thrive. And so it creates what I want to say is like the parallel journey of the, the Jennifer with a small J so I can be the human with a big H in my working life. <laughs> in, the, in the small J, there's a ton of work to do. And in the big H, I feel like I can occupy that with a kind of openness to the mystery that sometimes my own personal neuroses and template gets in the way of in my, in my smaller secular life. So the work teaches me how to be a better me all the time, every day. Without working with other people to, to help them see who they are, for me, that, that I'm the one that benefits the most because it gives me compassion for them and it also gives me compassion for myself that I haven't had most of my life was really not really present uh, at all so it's uh, access entree into uh, into compassion for myself that's uh, it's always been a big challenge for me so yeah thank you for the uh, thank you for the answer because I think it's important for a lot of people that are looking at where they're transitioning in their life and what kind of things they want to do and to look at it in this spiritual and energetic perspective because it goes beyond the nuts and bolts of, of uh, let's do this or let's do that or let's make some money. I think um, I, for me, I started um, dancing when I was a kid. I was never a high-level dancer. I didn't dance with anyone you've ever heard of or anything like that. But I did a lot in, with movement and theater and 
then became very involved in Pilates and yoga. I still am involved in those things. And the body was a place where the truth was always present for me. And so when I started to develop more of these energetic abilities, they came through the body. People ask me often if I'd be willing to do remote sessions for them where, you know, we're in completely different locations and the work is entirely 100% energetic. And I have done that work before, but there is something important about moving the work through the body and acknowledging that if we're here together on this planet, the body matters, no pun intended. As much as the, you know, you and I are sitting in two different, uh, two different states and having a, a conversation and we can look at each other as well. And there's a term, there's, there's, there's value in that, but there's also something always missing. And I found that, that I'd much rather, all things being considered, I'd much rather be in the same place with a person and having an interaction, a conversation, a coaching session, whatever, versus a, a Zoom call that is, you can certainly communicate, but there's, without that physical presence, it's different. And something you can't see, even the call that we're on today, I'm sitting on a bouncy ball and I'm kind of stretching and moving as though I were sort of a piece of seaweed floating in the ocean. You don't see that and you don't hear that in my voice, but for me, it's allowing me to tap into well, what is the source of this work and how do I answer these questions that you're asking me in a way that stays true and it's because it's in my body, in the truth of that movement, in the breath and in the voice. So even as we talk, I'm I'm engaging my body to help me tell you um, the the story that ha- was a piece of my journey of becoming who I am. Yeah, the body never lies, does it? It's something one of my my teachers taught me was to pay attention to you know, what your gut is telling you because it never it's never going to be wrong. But again, that's that's. It's, it was such a foreign experience to me to actually pay attention to things because I was so used to everything being a mental exercise. And it talks about it. I, the book I follow uh, for the last couple of years is The, the Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Mm. That, that, that talks about uh, that you don't have to listen to the voice in your head that's constantly giving you instructions of what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to go, that there's something else you can you can listen to in terms of your your own body and also in terms of paying attention to what the universe delivers in front of you, right? So so many of us ignore the opportunities, the things that come up that look like, well, that's not what I really wanted. Well, that's not what you wanted. Why does it keep showing up? Mm. I I have a little formula for myself if I'm making a difficult decision. I I always ask myself, are, are my head, my heart, and my gut in alignment? All three, you know, together bring me to better decisions. Sometimes my gut can be a little too fearful. Sometimes my mind can be a little too dour. Sometimes my heart can be a little too open. And so having everybody on board, 
checking and balancing, I find it has been very helpful to me. And that's a model based very loosely on Chinese medicine. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that, that level of balance and alignment. I thought maybe I'll wait till the next lifetime. <laughs> the one where you have the clean office. <laughs> there you go. The one where the, cl <laughs> where the clutter is not there any longer. Um, and stuckness, I will put in that category of uh, why people come to see either someone like you or someone like me. Stagnation. Yeah. Yeah. How do I get, how do I look at things in a different way and how do I start moving my body in a different way and, and consider new opportunities and new ideas that, that probably in many cases scare the heck out of you. Mm -hmm. Because all of that is uncomfortable, right? It's an un, un, unknown territory. And even when you're, when you're stuck or you're miserable, <laughs> there's also, if you've been doing that for your whole life or for a long time, there's a comfort in that. There's a, there's a knowingness. Oh, I know what that's like. You know, but, uh, yeah, you keep getting the same meal over and over and over again. You might hate it, but you know that it keeps you alive. But I think that one of the things that our kinds of work allow us to do is to remind the beloved people in front of us that there's so much more than that. Because I think that's one of the big things we forget is that we are in fact so much more than what we narrowly experience ourselves to be in relationship to the challenges that are pushing on us, especially in middle life. Yeah, that, that reminder is, and I want to Take a second, we can talk about uh, Modern Elder Academy and, and Chip Conley's work. But as I've talked about in other podcasts, I was uh, at his retreat in, um, in Baja, Mexico in uh, March of, uh, or I'm sorry, April of 19. And it was a tremendous transformational experience because it was a, it was a reminder of, of who I was and things I had forgotten because I had a group of uh, 17 people that we were sitting around and chatting about life and about people. When you talk to other people, all listened for a, for a long period of time. Nobody had any place to go. They didn't have to check their cell phones or their laptops. And, you know, I listened to other people's stories. We listened and fed back what we, what we saw of them and, 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 and they did the same for me. Decision to, to find environments where, where other people will help to remind you of who you really are. Whether it's, mm -hmm. we, both, we both get those reminders in terms of the, the, the work that we do, but there's all kinds of different avenues to that. And at Modern Elder Academy, it was a very unique environment and a very um, safe environment to do that, but it was very surprising to me of all the things that happened and things I learned about myself and things I remembered. Uh, I didn't really expect any of that to happen. It all mm. caught me by surprise. Hmm. Yes, it was a really powerful experience. Uh, I was there in probably right before you, so end of March, beginning of April of 2019. 
Yeah, you were there part of the week before I was there. So, <laughs> that, so what? How was it powerful for you? I think for me it was. Um, so the week that I was on, the theme of it was called "Crush Your Blocks," and it was a really finely honed uh, method to essentially compress your brain so tightly that your inner editor really couldn't filter. And so whatever you output in those periods of compression, it's kind of a pure main line coming from your inner self. And when I looked at all that material that had come poured out of me during that time with Janice, who is the creator of Crusher Blocks, Janice, is a wonderful, wonderful person. And if you ever get to go to MEA, I highly recommend her week. Um, what I discovered is that I'd actually built the right house. I just never turned the lights on. Hmm. And so it showed me that all the components were there for me to enjoy. It's just that the intensity and the pressures of transitioning into middle life had been so great that I was living in the right house, having the right experiences, but I wasn't really lit up from within because of exhaustion and all of the effort it took to build that house and all the challenges I had faced along the way. So the week allowed me to decompress from all of that kind of shellac over my soul. And then I was able to just come back to New York City, where I'm based, turn the lights on, and watch this gentle unfoldment of the next chapter of my life, which I hope will be this kind of long-ish elder period between now, I'm about to turn 50, and whenever that next phase starts, because I think this is not the last one. I think this is the penultimate. So when you say... You never turned the lights on. Is it would be that'd be a metaphor for you didn't appreciate the your own value in terms of all the things you'd done and all the great things you had created and the things you had followed that were important for you, uh, but you didn't fully recognize uh, who you were in doing all of that. Is that what that is? Is that how you would describe I it? Partially that and partially this um, beacon of availability, like a firefly, you know, when they light up and light up and light up to call for their mate, they're doing that because they're acknowledging their presence. And I feel like I had done all that sort of behind the scenes in this very gestational way. And then I never really came into the present, the presence of it. The beacon of availability. I'm here. Yes. Yes, exactly that. And then when that happened, it wasn't like a tidal wave. It was like a very steady, clear change of energy and vibration. And I want to say that those first six months coming back from MEA were really hard because I was in a new space internally, but you know, 
of the world had to meet me in that new space. But now, almost a year out from it, that change feels complete. And the light is on. And all of these new opportunities and experiences are present. And I'm able to start to open my heart to what then becomes you know, not just the path, as I had said earlier, but what is the path I'm going to choose for myself now? Any specific things you can say when you turned the lights on in the last year that uh, that showed up differently or how you how you felt about yourself when you made that decision to turn the lights on? <laughs> The thing that I noticed most clearly is that the timing of things changed. Before, you know, I would set my plan and I would think about what I was going to do and I would, you know, make a structure to do it and I would either get the training I needed or set up the meetings I needed or find, you know, the opportunities that I needed. And all of these things had a kind of laborious quality to them, which, you know, makes you feel very accomplished when you achieve them. But when the lights went on, it started to become a lot more spontaneous and organic. And so when I had set my kind of New Year's resolutions, which I'm not a big New Year's resolution person, but in December, I had some things that I thought, I really want to do these things in 2020 pretty much all of those things happened in December of 2019. <laughs> so okay. I was joking that, okay, I'm done. Now I can just coast through the rest of the year. But the truth is, is that when the light's on, people who are interested in that light, people who are receptive and open themselves and interested in longing for these kind of conversations show up. It's not instantaneous. So I don't want to lead someone down the path of saying like, all you have to do is do a weekend and then your whole life's going to change. No, it's a pretty long, hard road, even after MEA. But the change was a lot about timing. And that surprised me. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that even six months ago, but now it's very clear. Timing and sequence is very important, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I find that, when you're impatient, you get the sequence wrong. You know, when you're not energetically in the right place, um, then you try and force things or, or you put things in the wrong order. And if you're doing the right things and they're in the wrong order, you're going to get the wrong result. One of the experiences I had at MEA with uh, MEA shaman, Saul, uh, at the top of the mountain, uh, where he said to me, uh, you just need to ask for what you want, and then you wait. And that second part, you wait, is a, a challenge for me all my life. It's, it's, it's immediate gratification. Make it happen. The male energy is, you know, do something. Something's going to happen. You're going to get a result. It's all going to happen you know, boom, boom, boom. And that, that, and Saul said, well, you don't do, don't do nothing while you wait, <laughs> do something. The idea that there's important things that you're attracting to you, it's because you've simply asked for it, but you're also willing to wait. You're willing to let the universe's timing 
play out, that you have a, a trust that it will play out in the right way, that the opportunities will show up, the people will show up, the, the events that are, that are the right ones for you will show up when they're supposed to. And you can say, I'd like them all today, but when you're willing to, uh, to wait, they do show up. And again, all the things in my life that have been, been unbelievable, things that have shown up, never been things that I planned for or, or made happen because I figured it out. Hmm. So, you know, on a, on a fundamental level, I think that the experience of being human is relational. I was talking about that with sort of the watery beginnings. Right. And even when things are not coming to you, there's always two relationships you can invest in, which is your relationship to yourself and your relationship to whatever it is that the mystery means to you. Um, that can be spirit, God, any of the words that you want to use to describe it. But those two relationships, you can always continuously investigate. And that's where I try to, um, in that, especially in that really rough, rocky patch before MEA and then right after it, I, I really tried to hold my feet there so that I continue the development process and minimize the pressure on myself. And then very sh shortly thereafter in the grand scheme of things, um, it became relational fully in the human realm. That is fantastic, Jennifer. Based on your experience, based on what you've learned, somebody that was um, a young woman just coming out of school and starting her life it's in her early 20s, what advice would you give to her? Well, I would say nothing is a waste. Anything that you decide to do is going to set you on your path if you're open to it. And so all you have to do is do something. Engage with something. And it's the engagement that leads to the unfoldment. Engagement leads to the unfoldment. I love that. Hmm. Uh, a guy that I follow uh, from India, Sadhguru, talks uh, so much about that engagement. He's, he says it's, uh, I guess I forget exactly how he puts it, but he talks about everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to be uh, belong, wants to be a member, wants to be a part of a community, but they don't want to really engage. You know, you can't belong but be disengaged and, and not pay attention. You have to engage in a real way on a on a human level because you're not gonna you're not gonna work your life out by sitting in front of a computer and surfing the internet. That's not that's not where it's going to happen. It's gonna happen by being engaged with the rest of the world in whatever way suits you. That's exactly right. Except I wanna to say to all those people who are techies, you could be sitting there and surfing the net because that might be your path to engagement. Possible, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to besmirch my tech brethren and sisters who, who have found those ways to connect through that very unlikely medium and change the world because of it. I agree. Well, well said, and that can be a part of it, right? But you still engagement have to... is never passive. So if you are a person that is, like I was kind of teasing about the tech people, but they are truly engaged when they are at 
their screen creating. That's engagement for them. So engagement can, I'm making the point that engagement can look like anything as long as your heart, mind, and gut are behind it. Absolutely. And lastly, Jennifer, what do you have planned for the, the next year? Yeah, so my hope in the next uh, two decades, I'm looking at the two decades as the bookend with the 10-year mark in the middle as the reflection point. Um, I'm hoping to write at least one book about some of the work that I do, but also a playful book for my own enjoyment of some poetry because I've started to write poetry and really enjoy it two separate things, just one, my pet project of creativity and the other kind of more illuminating some of the things that I've gotten to experience in this very um, interesting life. And uh, I want to continue to learn, grow and develop. So I'm always training in new aspects of uh, energy medicine. I'm going to study a bit with two wonderful healers, one locally here in New York City, who focuses on craniosacral therapy, and another, Anne-Marie Shiasan, who is based in Arizona, who is at the interface of medicine and shamanism. Awesome. Yes. I will post in the show notes... Um, all your information for people that would like to contact you. Um, and you do, as you said, it sounds like you do most of your work you do locally within New York versus doing uh, remote work, correct? I do most of my work. Uh, if you make a case, maybe I'll take your case if you want to do some remote healing work. But mostly I work here in New York City, although in my vision for the next 20 years, I'd like to think of expansion as on my horizon. So there may be opportunities to see me in other locations um, as I start to spend some more time out of the city. Jennifer, thank you for telling us uh, the amazing story of following your dream and how you've lived an unconventional life. You're untamed by the conventions of your life and completely feral uh, in a way that is, um, I think, just uh, inspiring for other people to understand how you've uh, looked at things in an energetic way and what's really possible because uh, and how you help people to find that for themselves as well congratulations on on being yourself and showing up as an authentic and inspiring and accomplished uh, woman and uh, sharing that with our audience we really appreciate you being here well thank you so much for having me okay thanks for listening to this is personal rewinding a life if you like today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. All of that would be greatly appreciated. You can find me at dansimon.co, on Instagram, dansimontv, or Twitter, at dansimontv. Thanks for listening to the show today. New show will be out on Monday. Have a great week.